it's it's right before pupation. Um, I think the, the larva defecates. It has one uh, defecation event, and then it spins its its cocoon. It takes and it's a, a giant it's a pre pupa, and then it's a cocoon. Yeah, and they eat all summer, and then, now then on. they poop. Every time I have to go to the bathroom, I'm gonna refer to it as a defecation event. You are listening to Urban Wildlife. Doug Sponsor, what did you see? We saw squash bees. Um, okay. I think we there were two male squash bees, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, with a lot of bees, the, the males can be distinguished. Well, if you have a microscope, you can actually count the antennal segments, <laughs> and they, they have an extra antennal segment. They have 13 <laughs> instead of 12. Um, but if you're used to seeing bees and you see a bee that has antennae that just look a little longer than, than you're used to, that's probably the and male of the species. Doug's an entomologist who studies bees. So he's not just the guy up the street who claims he can <laughs> eyeball squash bees like this. Um, so we are in a, let's call it a West Philly community garden um, owned by the Walnut Hill Community Association where I've got a couple squash plants. Um, we're here with Doug Sponsler and Tony Grosdale. And this is Billy Brown. We're trying to do a quick conversational episode about squash bees. Do you see them flying or were they in the flower? Um, they were flying. I think I think we spooked them actually. Okay, um, we'll back off of this. Yeah. Um, so what I, so for setting the scene some more, this is, used to be like, I guess a twin, if you're familiar with West Philly housing. And is there a cardinal over there that's yeah. upset at us, perhaps? You know, in some places the houses fall down and then they're vacant lots, and this is one that years ago had been turned into garden space. And it's got a few garden beds in the back. And in one of them I threw a couple seeds of a of a squash I like, fairy squash. Um, it's a hybrid out of East Asia, and it's fabulous. And uh, the species, it's funny, when you read something all the time, you never know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Cucorbita um, moschata, it looks like. Oh. M-O-S-C-H-A-T-A. So it's not cucurbita pepo. Pepo would be like acorn squashes, most what people think of as pumpkins and zucchinis. This one is the one that butternut squashes are, along with a bunch of other ones that um, we don't see sold quite as much. My favorite of all the cucorbita are something, or the cucorbita maxima, which is like Hubbard's and one of my favorites I ever grew, jumbo pink banana squashes. I'm a big fan of squash in gardening, so it's, I can go on. I might go on forever. <laughs> uh, and there's one other one that produces something that you see in the deep south called kushaw squashes. And you'll see those for sale sometimes. They're like big squashes with like a neck that kind of curves and they got green and white stripes. And so you see them see them sold. Um, it's like a one that's more commonly grown, like in Central America. Um, they just renamed the species, and I can't pronounce the new name. Um, <laughs> those are the ones you see grown in temperate areas. Anyhow, so the the advantage that that this variety has is that it it has solid stems. So there's a the moth called the um, squash vine borer. Which it's really beautiful pest. It it's yeah. a beautiful pest. It's yeah. like, it's this moth that looks a little bit like a wasp. It's got these... Hey, podcast listeners. I'm cutting in here because I screwed up my description of the squash vine borer adult while we were out there. Uh, it's a clear-winged wasp mimic moth with a red and gray body and black veined clear wings. It really is quite pretty, even if I wish it would go extinct. And uh, it is a vile little animal if you like squash <laughs> in that it... Um, it sort of lays its eggs at the base of the stems. The larvae like eat into the stems and then like live inside the squash, eating the inside of the stem for a while. 
and then one day the entire plant just dies um, because it's sort of cut through, sort of eaten through the stem enough. Um, and you don't know how to, you don't know it's there to fight it until the whole plant's dead. And so one of the ways you avoid it completely is to plant squash that, has hollow, that don't have hollow stems. Hey, Billy, I might take you up on your offer of, of DEET. Okay. I've been walking around with some, <laughs> they, they some are spraying today. in my pocket. Um, so if you've never been in West Philly or another row house based kind of city, landscape is like, you know, the, you have a lot of row houses fronting the street and then um, behind them you have gardens usually or, or just little yard spaces but it's all very well shaded. And then you've got like enough clog gutters and little pools of water. So, and it's always kind of shady. And so you have tons of mosquitoes whenever you're behind a house in West Philly. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Why did I think this was an interesting urban wildlife topic or wildlife topic at all? Billy, why did you think it was interesting? All right. Yeah, well, why did you? Why, why am I... <laughs> Why did I drag you I out love, of your bed? I love, I love really you dearly, um, but <laughs> I did wake up at 5.30. Uh, luckily, I only live a 10-minute walk from you. So. <laughs> so the reason is that I love squash peas. The reason I find this stuff fascinating is that, you know, I, Tony and I both professionally, recreationally do, like, native plant gardening, right? So, like, we're standing in the space where I've been pulling out exotic plants and like planting native ones like create like we're looking at a fence that's covered in virginia creeper and the reason it's not covered in porcelain berry is because i keep killing the porcelain berry and favoring the the closely related <laughs> native the the virginia creeper um and then uh i don't know what else do i kill back here like everything um i just was pulling out some melanthus saplings and behind doug we've got like some woodland sunflower um some uh Jerusalem artichoke, which is basically another sunflower that people grow for tubers. And then there's a viburnum behind them, and then some joe pie weed, and then purple coneflower. Purple coneflower I got going on over there. Um, so Let me I, just say, as somebody who thinks a lot about plants and pollinators and stuff, this is a beautiful place. I, oh, okay. I, uh, you've chosen very well. And I've got, like, and then lower in the beds, I've been, like, pulling out other things, but leaving, like, the, the, um, the violets and... The, I've been I've got a, 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 a complicated relationship with the white snake root because um, they'll take over completely, but it is very much a native and has very nice fall flowers. So I've been sort of trying to leave some balance of that. So basically, you know I, the, the the story of uh, the, the milk poisoning. Role I do, of the white but snake? it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, and how did it play a role in the death of, of Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, Tom? go I ahead. Doug. This, well, so I, I don't know. This, this is kind of you know hearsay, but but I, I you know the story goes. That, I looked it up. Um, I think it's legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Milk poisoning used to be fairly common um, because white snake root uh, produces a toxin that when when cows eat it, they produce poisonous milk. Most of the time, it's it's noticed when uh, nursing calves die um but uh, sometimes okay. if you if you drink the milk it can kill people too and i, I think the story goes abraham lincoln's mother mother was yeah was yeah was killed due to milk sickness um, yeah from the cow getting into the white uh, snake root i don't see any cows around here i think it's I think, probably a safe place to cultivate white we're snake safe. Root. yeah <laughs> so anyhow i've been doing all this work because um i like native plants and stuff and and you know a lot of these are great for pollinators um i even have these moments where i, I was reading a book by a good friend of ours called the the Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia, um, Ken Frank, the author, um, and wrote about something called Pennsylvania Pellitory. It grows up along sidewalk cracks. You see it all over the place. It was take, not taking over, but it was one of the things I yanked out of beds. 
And then I realized, I read his book, I'm like, oh no, this is, oh, this is native also. And it's actually a host for red admirals, which is um, mm. one of my favorite butterflies. Uh, and it's, uh, it's related to, to nettles, basically. And so I've been leaving some more of that, not yanking all of it out. And what are the, what are the reasons we do native gardening? We do it, you know, maybe some preference with plant species, but also because it, it tends to fit in better with the community of, of insects, mainly, and then everything that eats insects. Um, and it's something that, like, I've noticed, I paid more attention to, probably because Tony's got me into birding, is that when you're in, like, up in the Poconos, or even just, like, I was, like, along the riverbank on the Schuylkill, where it's mostly, like, willows and, like, silver maples and box elder, all stuff that's, like, native. You see birds foraging there and just, like, coming out with tons of caterpillars. Mm. Or, like, when you're out in, like, what we all call, like, intact woods, even though they've been logged four times, but it's, like, mostly native stuff. And, like, you walk, and there's, like, moths flying up with every step, you know? And you turn on the you're at night, and you're camping. You turn on your flashlight, and you see, like, army of spider, like, eye shines, like, <laughs> in the leaf litter when you look around. Part of what we're doing... It's probably a nightmare scenario for a lot of people, but I, it think, is, it's, I think it's pretty cool. Too. I think it's really cool, too. It's like, because <laughs> you turn the light, you're like, are there really that many spiders? <laughs> and, like, yes, there's tons of spiders, because there's tons of other bugs. So part of why I do this... And I think why a lot of us do this is because, like, we love all the animals. We're looking up. We love the whole like sort of network of of animals that eat the plants. And so then, when you plant stuff for vegetables, it's sort of like, all right, a lot of times you're planting exotics. But then, when it comes to stuff like this, I it's like in this fun gray area for me. And so that's why I oh, want to drag it a bit. Squash bees back. There he is. So he's buzzing around quickly. We're gonna stand yeah, back. Notice their their flight pattern is is pretty distinctive. Um, it, it gets very different from what you'd see from a honeybee or a bumblebee, right? If you're used to, to watching them, they're they're much more slow and deliberate. But the squash bees we're seeing now, um, their their flight pattern actually reminds me more of the way flies. I agree. Yeah. Um, tend to tend to, to circle and um, be more erratic. So like right here where we are in in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. oh, there he goes. Oh, he's in. Oh, no, he's not. I'll talk. They're not bothered by sound, so I guess. So this is a female in here now. Oh. They look a little bit like honeybees, but they're a little flatter with narrower bands is the best way I could distinguish them. And they have a, well, kind of like noses. The, the, what's the, the part of the, the insect face called the clippius, um, which is you know, where you'd imagine a nose to be on an insect, protrudes uh, um, uh, unusually far in squash bees. Okay. So that's uh, another distinctive. Usually what I'm looking at is their butts. Because um, yeah. they're, they're, they're head down in a squash yeah, flower. Yeah. And for those who haven't seen squash, squash flowers are big yellow flowers. Like they can be like six inches across. And it's fun when it warms up a little bit. Squash bees are like, I think of them as morning people. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why we're at it like six in the morning. There's an interesting study that, that, can, that was looking at the, the efficacy of honeybee versus squash bee pollination in, in squash. Are we, we going to bring that up? No, no okay, but well, by all means, go ahead. So, yeah. uh, I mean, the, both of them will, will visit squash. Um, but what, what the study found, and uh, forgive me for forgetting the author, and maybe Vincent Tepidino was involved in this, but um, the, what they found was that even though the honeybees, in the absence of the squash bees, would be effective pollinators, in the presence of the squash bees, the pollination needs were completely fulfilled by the time the honeybees got up in the morning, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the squash bees got out at 6 a.m. and were done by the time the honeybees the came out at 9 a.m. So, yeah. yeah. And so when you're looking at bees, whether it's honeybees, whatever, like later in the day, if we were out here at like, at like 11, when I think we'll all be at work or something, um, you'll see like bumblebees and honeybees like tripping over each other and like, like really like 
like elbowing each other aside inside squash flowers. Like, I imagine for bees, these things are like. I mean, maybe the nectar is particularly good. I don't know. Well, it's, it's particularly tons of copious. Pollen. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If it's, but it's like it's like falling into a swimming pool of yeah. nectar for these bees. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're awesome flowers. She's back. She's yeah. back. But so then, is this a native or not? And so, the fun thing is that we'll start with the plants. So this is definitely not a native plant. This is a variety of squash that originates, I think, in northern South America, but butternuts basically. Um, we have closely close relatives, Corbidipepo, which is. And squash are kind of confusing translating the species into familiar products, but let's say the, the pepo are like zucchinis, acorn squashes, and then what mostly we buy is pumpkins. Although really, any orange round squash can be called a pumpkin, and that can come from like three different species of squash. So the pepo was domesticated in, I think, like the middle south of the United States, as well as probably another spot, I think, in Central America um, or Mexico. And C. maxima, I think, is another South American. And so I forget, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm trying to, I haven't been able to find which exact ones were cultivated by American Indians here. Um, I'm betting it was, it was C. Pepo, but they, they were cultivated, right? But it was all pre-Columbian cultivated. And so they would have been seeds that had been probably domesticated, let's say in Tennessee or something like that. And then sort of like, you know, spreading with other plants like North, but then grown here, you know, maybe for... I don't know, a thousand years? Who knows, before like colonists got here. And then the squash bees, like any of the commensals of the plant, um, including the much reviled squash vine borers, but also squash bugs, I imagine like maybe cucumber beetles too, I'm not sure. I haven't looked up the, maybe they all feed on close relatives that, that I'm not thinking of. But I'm betting they came along for the ride also. And so, you know, squash bee, might be like native quote unquote to like Tennessee or something but doesn't know doesn't care you know if a flower opens up you know like a mile down the <clears throat> river got here eventually yeah. because they're, they're where do squash bees reproduce like where, where do they mate like, where like do the they... ones we're seeing here oh, where so would their where would they be reproducing at like nesting yeah. I'll just note that yeah. a bumblebee just flew by it's our first bumblebee I think first non-squash bee the bumbles get up pretty early too. They're, yeah. Um, so, so one of the interesting things about squash bees is that they're probably nesting right here. They tend to nest right under the foliage of the squash plant, and um, in a place like this where squash plants are kind of uh, distributed in a, a spotty way, if there is a squash plant somewhere being visited by squash bees, I, I would be surprised not to find. Be surprised. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Early in the morning, the turn Um the, the, the there are, are likely if there are not squash bees nesting already, there probably will be by the end of the season, right under these these leaves here. So um, the the males like to hang out in the flowers overnight because they know the females are coming the next morning. And they, they, <laughs> it's like sleeping in the bark. Exactly. Yeah. So um, they they hang out to uh, to to be prepared when the females show up. Um, yeah. So they're you know they're they're not being transported with squash. Right? Squash no, or transplanted yeah, the, the seed. Yeah. yeah. Or the fruit, yeah. Or so. Yes. But, so, yeah, but they're not, right, they're not, like, developing inside the... Yeah, when you yeah. think of, like, insects that are associated with our food, insect, you know, I mean, I guess you wouldn't call these invasive insects, but when you think of insects that have... Just what the hell are they? <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you've moved, that, have, that humans have moved often... That, you know they're in the soil that around a plant, or they're or they're in, oh, like infesting the plant in some way. Ash, emerald ash borer, yeah. which was transported in wood, or like um, 
or Dutch elm, or sorry, what's the beetle that transports Dutch elm disease? Um, those bark beetles, whatever they are, yeah. that were transported across the Atlantic in wood. You know, yeah, like that kind of thing. So the so these have to leave the area that and they have to you know disperse naturally, right? You know, without yeah. trucks or ships, right? Or horses, or carriages, I guess. Which or, you know, yeah. during or, the period in which they were dispersing, everything had to disperse without trucks and ships for, <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Yeah. But, but even, horses, even now, yeah. like yeah, like um. Think about like zucchini, which is so associated with like Italian cuisine, you know, and and um, um, a lot of times, right? I don't know. I mean, I've, I remember being served a zucchini when I was in Italy, and other squash the name bees that we use for it is Italian, yeah, yeah, yeah other um, squash bees in Italy. I honestly don't know. That's something I probably should have read up on before. No, I was no, I don't, on I'm gonna say I don't think right. so because I think I noticed when I when I I got really serious about I've sort of backed off. I was a little too into it because squash can take a ton of space but I lived in a different apartment building where we had a ton of garden space and so I was like some of it just wasn't used for anything I was like all right I'm putting squash back here and so I had like tons of squash plants and these are plants that could go like 40 feet per vine you know and so I did a lot of research and on pests there are parts of the country let's say like west of the Rockies where they just don't have squash vine borers and then I think in much of Europe or Australia or South Africa places where they grow a lot of squash there just aren't pests there. And so I'm gonna, since both those and the bees would be transported, would transport themselves, basically, I'm gonna guess, no, there's no squash. Yeah, I just did a quick uh, quick Google search <laughs> there, and, and based on those preliminary results, I did not find support for, for any old world squash <laughs> bees. So there's two, two genera of, yeah, of squash the bees. So there's uh, the Pepinapis and, and Xenoglossa. Both of them are, are cucurbita specialists, and I think both of them are, uh, are, are new world genera. So yeah, now, now I I, I, uh, I should say the the real expert on this topic is actually a colleague of mine, Margarita Lopez Uribe, who wrote yeah uh, an awesome paper, paper I read this. a couple years ago. Yeah, go ahead, talk about it. Oh, it's a fantastic paper, um, and, and she and her colleagues uh, set out to, to to tell the story of the spread of Pepinapis pruinosa through through North America following the cultivation of cucurbita. Um, they used uh, some some genetic methods to to the, the idea being that when you when you trace a species along the path of its dispersal, you tend to have a reduction in genetic diversity the farther you get from its origin yep. because you get kind of bottlenecking events and such. Which is how they know, um, like that's why we say humans. One of the reasons we know humans evolved in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, I think you can use reason. very similar tools. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My, my knowledge this comes from from her work. Yeah. Uh, but the the initial domestication of cucurbita traces back about 10,000 years to the, the initial one in, into it was now Mexico. Um, and then there was a second domestication event in like the lower Midwest of what is now the United States, like Missouri or something. Right, that's what we're talking about, the other Pepo domestication center, yeah. So the question was whether, uh, there's a bumble right there. Um, so the question was whether Pepinapus pruinosa spread w- with that I- initial uh, domestication event of cucurbita up through North America, and particularly into eastern North America, which is kind of the, the farthest removed from its, yeah. its um, we're native like, we're range. We're like the end of the distribution now. We, we I mean, are. Like I mean, Maine it gets, or Nova yeah, it gets up yeah. fairly far north, I think, really, as far as the cucurbita go. Um, yeah. uh, or whether it, it was that uh, initial expansion into like what is now the Midwest U.S., and then it spread east from there. And I, I think what, what she and her colleagues found was support for the idea that the, it was it was from the the Midwest U.S. and probably associated with that second domestication event yeah. that the the source population of Pepinapis for the eastern United States came from. 
Um, really, really interesting study. I, I believe yeah. Margarita is, is working now on a, another population genetics type study of, of Papinapis in Pennsylvania um, squash fields. So I'm oh, looking, looking forward to seeing that come together. Yeah. Hi, podcast listeners. I should have had these notes ready before we started recording, but the paper that we're talking about is titled Crop Domestication Facilitated Rapid Geographic Expansion of a Specialist Pollinator, the Squash Bee Pepinapis pruinosa by Margarita Lopez Uribe, James Kane, Robert Minkley, and Brian Danforth, published in 2016 in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And since we're so far north, where squash naturally occurred, and the associated bees, so these bees had to adapt to be able to overwinter for a yeah. much longer period of time than they normally would have. Yeah, I mean, they originated in the, the you know, subtropics, basically, in, in, in Central America. Um, so, yeah, that, that is... But it, even it, if you're just going from, like, from like the Mississippi Valley around Tennessee to Nova Scotia or something, yeah. or Maine, that's a hell of a difference there. And these are soil-nesting bees, too, so... Oh, they would be killed by the frost. Well, or I mean, if they're, they, they, they nest, they're like, deep, yeah. deep enough that yeah. I, I think probably the, one of the reasons they can do this is because they, they nest fairly deep. I think their nests are usually about 20 centimeters deep, hmm. which is uh, even spares them from... from shallow tillage sometimes which is yeah. important for oh, living okay. in, in squash yeah. but but an interesting thing Otherwise, is that they don't get plowed up yeah, yeah yeah i mean you certainly can plow them up if you till too deeply but uh, it, so as an aside if you want to to foster squash bees among your squash then opt for a no-till or a minimal till which approach. is tough because like that's the opposite advice of how to handle squash vine borers oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because so no, they, they they their life cycle is they they kill your squash plants and then um, they they pop out and they pupate in the soil, and I think spend the winter in the soil. How, how deep do they? That's the go, question. Yeah, yeah so you might know. be able to till like you know to top six inches or something and I spare the squash bees. Uh, sorry, but go ahead. You're talking. Anyway, about these so, uh, important cultural controls, yeah. right? That we need to parse out. By the yeah. way, I just want to before I forget, Billy's. Um, eating lamb's quarters straight from the um, <laughs> like it's the morning I'm standing here I'm looking at these lamb's quarters before I yank them out I'll munch on them but with, with ground nesting bees they often have pretty strong preferences for soil properties um, but if you're going to be a ground nesting bee with a range from Mexico to to Maine then you have to be pretty tolerant of a whole range of soil types and apparently squash bees must be or, or perhaps it's that they, they just like the same soils that you can grow squash in but I I think they must be kind of a, a soil generalist in a way for a ground nesting bee. Are they in, um, do they pollinate the native, like a, what, bur cucumber? Is bur cucumber, what are our native cucumbers? Bur cucumber? So what I understand of this is that our native, that I don't know that we have native cucumbers. I don't know. Actually, I don't, cucumbers, I don't know. I mean, I, the ones I'm familiar with are just the cucorbita genus. Yeah. Um, and in its strict sense, Pennsylvania has no native um, cucorbita, but they've been cultivated here by by humans. I don't know for a couple thousand years, maybe. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not positive. Maybe it's like we do have plants in the same family, but not in the same. I, but genus. I don't know if we do. Like I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, it just occurred to me. Sorry to, to interrupt, but I was watching the squash bee, and it's kind of erratic flight pattern. And I bet the reason why we're seeing that uncharacteristic flight pattern is that these are males looking for females, not females looking for flowers. Uh, and so I think what it's doing is checking the flower for a female, being disappointed, uh, and then going to the next one. But but kind of 
you know, swooping around, and, and it just kind of tackled that fly there. It was no <laughs> doubt disappointed when it did that, but, um, oh, hi, squirrels. Wrong identity. Um, <laughs> I think that's a, what kind of bee is that? So there, I'm going to, now I got an entomologist okay. here. So we got this black bee with big pollen. Oh, so this is, uh, this is actually, um, I think, often called the black bee or something. This is a bimacula, uh, Melisodes bimaculatus. Okay. Um, so it's a, a fairly common bee that also also likes squash pollen. This is a, a female, so I'm not going to just grab her, but I'll kind of try to handle How to handle bees without getting stung a whole lot. Yeah, well, uh, let's, let's see. Um, so you can see the, the oh, pollen all over her. Uh, one, one thing that's interesting about cucurbits is that they, they just have massive pollen grains. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so they're so big that with the naked eye, you can you can see individual pollen grains easily. Yeah. And that actually presents a, a real challenge for... For, for bees, it's like, you know, how many beach balls can you pick up at once? And take home? <laughs> uh, I, I Here, think... you're closer, so check that one. I think it's got someone yeah. feeding in it. Yeah, so this is a, uh, this is a squash bee. I think that's a male. Okay, so we got another male. In there. All right, um, we'll let them drink, I guess. But... Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why um, squash bees can, can specialize on squash pollen is that they they can deal with the, the just the morphology of the pollen, which is yeah. a challenge for like honeybees don't like it. Honeybees will get it on them and then scrape it off because it just is, is you can't an pack it in the, the pouches quite yeah, the same way. Yeah. yeah, you've got a lot of ants checking this one out too. So I think I, I interrupted a discussion of the nativeness of cucurbits in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Where were we? With we weren't. Tony was trying to look it up real quick. Well, oh. Burr cucumber is native. Okay. Great. Okay. But it's um, it's like native to. Not quite here. I've got a bulk of a spula maculata hanging out over there, the bald-faced hornet, which is not technically a hornet since we... But it's, it's in the genus Sicyos. Sicyos or whatever, I don't know, Sicyos. Where is it native to? Here. Oh, okay. So, but you're saying... So I wonder if there's squash bees associated with it, or I, are there I think they're different species? cucurbita. Okay. I, I think they're... I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure they're cucurbita specialists. I gotta kill that. Right, I gotta figure out what to do. Sorry, I was slightly distracted by a gardening idea, Observing which is some porcelain berry. Or right, something. right. The, this <clears throat> hornet was loving the porcelain berry, but I don't love porcelain berry. That's um, a that's a, a a native hornet there, or more accurately, a native aerial yellow jacket. <laughs> I know it's a. <laughs> But I got I'm being facetious. That's the that's our topic today, right? Yeah, <laughs> but this is the topic. I mean, so then. Oh my God! Well, speaking of Wonder yellow name. jackets, have you seen that video of the guy? This is unearthing the enormous yellow jacket nest. No, oh. this is like, oh my God, this guy. Hey, Dad. <gasps> oh. Ladies are spending thousands of dollars on collagen lip injections just okay. to get those vibrant, luscious lips you've always wanted. Well, here's an easy tip. Just have two wash sting ya. Boom, boom. Right in the lip. It's the guy making the most of some squash, some some wasp stings. Yeah, apparently he had to pick up some keys and then yellow jacket stung him right in the lips. Oh, man. But, all right. But, uh, yeah. The, now, I have to come to the, to the defense of yellow jackets. They're not... Uh, as, as aggressive as they're often reputed to be. It's just that th th their nests are so inconspicuous that people disturb their nests without realizing yeah. that there's ever you're a nest around. The lawn. Yeah, I hit one with a McLeod doing trail work yeah. once. What's that? It's a, a, a giant, like, um, like trail work rake okay. device. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I hit... And, uh, it doesn't sound good at all. Oh, yeah, and 
they were attacking my backpack for 45 minutes. Because you left your backpack behind, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, okay. They would have been attacking you for 45 minutes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, so, so they have no native host species, technically speaking. They have um, a long cultivated, quote, exotic, unquote, here. And so like when you're a native gardener, like, it kind of had me sort of, I was sort of trying to rethink, like, what do we do about things? Because on the one hand, it's fun to talk about the squash bees, because we like, because they're bees, they're cute, they don't harm anything, they actually help your plants, or they help your plants fruit. But then, by the same token, the squash vine borer is also a native, <laughs> or the same degree of nativeness that I hate and would wipe out if I had the chance. Um, or at least just limit to Delaware or something. I don't know. <laughs> what is native, you know? Yeah. And and maybe or even, even more matters. than that, what, yeah, what, what matters and, and what is the connection between nativeness and mattering? <laughs> right. So here we have, like, plant that, like, have been cultivated for so long around here, you know, that, like, and they have this whole community of commensal insects. So, if, like, the reason I like native stuff is because there's some kind of, like, heritage angle for where we are check we got that um and it you know is not a blank spot on the trophic web you know like arborvitae yeah the arborvitae right there except for the bagworms what the hell eats arborvitae um and so like it's why you plant it you know because it's it's an old planting i'm gonna get rid of it um but the arborvitae is there because people plant them because they're successful because nothing eats them but then from a perspective of someone who likes how things fit into local you know trophic webs um that means it's sort of like a, a blank spot on the landscape. There's nothing eating it, you know, there's nothing eating what eats it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all its, as Tony likes to put it, like all its nutrients are sort of locked up in its tissue, um, inaccessible to anything else, until it dies and then gets and decomposes, I guess? I don't know. Um, but that's not the case for butternut squashes, even though they're not technically native probably the place to start the conversation maybe there's 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 two sides there's a, a critique of the the native non-native dichotomy and there's yeah, yeah. a question of how we value things right yeah and um i think that and anybody who who's, who's thought through and in, in literature i think this comes out that the the, the native non-native dichotomy is is more of like a maybe a, a, a media polemic than a, a, a valid scientific category because right, yeah. everything exists on a continuum. You, you could describe nativeness in terms of time since introduction or yeah, uh, by, as Which we're kind of doing means here. of introduction. Yeah. Like this, so for example, squash has both been here for a long time and spread on its own. Uh, well, well, it spread with cultivation. The squash bee then followed that cultivation, but but in either case, it was it was not like it, it was taken across the Atlantic in ship ballast by yeah. accident. Um, so, like the mugwort I'm about to yank yeah, out? Yeah, exactly. So in that case, uh, that we might empty. say that well, this is the, the most benign form of non-nativeness. <laughs> yeah. um, you take something like uh, the camel ash borer or the mugwort that you just pulled up and it was it was imported recently. It was imported... Uh, ship ballast. In, 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 yeah, um, or in the case of ash borer and oh, packing yeah. material um, as, as a you know, byproduct of human economic activity. And also, it's worth noting too that this this squash plant is, is not causing any economic or ecological damage, so far as we can tell. Whereas the emerald ash borer has caused you know, millions, if not billions, of dollars of damage, uh, and it's it's going to wipe out uh, most of the genus of trees in North America. So a significant uh, genus, yeah. Yeah. 
So the difference in our judgment there is not because one is native and the other is not, but because of the effects that they have. So yeah. I, I think on, on the one hand we need to, uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not tenable ultimately to, to value something based on its nativeness or non-nativeness. Um, but you can go too far in that direction too, and I think some people just end up kind of throwing up their hands and, and have this really laissez-faire approach to. I call it eco nihilism, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it, exactly what it is. And there's sort of this, this vague, um, you know, optimism that we're just letting evolution take its course or something. But I mean, a, we, we may or may not want evolution to take its course, right? <laughs> Depending on what that course is. But b, this is this is not a, a, a an unguided course. This is something being facilitated by our actions, and we have considerable control over. So we do. And I'll <laughs> quote the great economist John Maynard Keynes um, when someone said, "Oh, in the long term it'll work out," and he said, "In the long run, we're all dead." Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in the time it will take, Arbor. Vide and and Euonymus, is that the name of the other stuff over there? The variegated, yeah, yeah. The to acquire its suite of 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 the commensals, you know, to control it, like, or to transform it into being beneficial. Because if you have enough commensals, then you know that their nutrients are being you know allocated around, and yeah, you know. Take advantage of by other things. It might things. be a thousand years, and I would like my kid, my my daughter, and her descendants, you know, to to in, to live in a rich place where we've got lots of critters running around, and and we can connect with nature that way, even if we're in a city. Yeah. So uh, there has to be some acknowledgement that yeah. the introduction of species is potentially ecologically disruptive. Yeah. Um, and that especially when we're the facilitators of it, we need to take responsibility for the, the damage that's caused and try to yeah. mitigate it. But just because something is not native does does not mean it is for that reason. Um, that, I like watching, yeah. sorry, a bumblebee <laughs> land. Well, not that was bumblebee, a, I'm was sorry. The Melisodes. The, the yeah. Melisodes, I'm sorry, different category. And then see, like, the squash be, like, filled up. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> basically, <laughs> the male's like, are you a few? Oh, never mind. Um, but the, in the meantime, the Melisodes gets like knocked over sideways, and it's like, what? <laughs> what yeah. is Melisodes? It's a genus of. It's, it's a genus of bee. It's called the longhorn bee because it tends to have characteristically long antennae. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it, it also visits squash. Uh, the the one that's common around here is Melisodes bimaculatus, which is this this beautiful big black bee, it's solid nice black. Bee. Yeah. Um, and then it, it looks really beautiful when it, it collects bright pollen because it's like a solid black bee with this dusting of colorful powder. We're looking at it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Were they, are they ground nesters also? I believe so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I sure. I want to back up really quick and say, and like prompt Doug on a quick converse, quick comment, because um, I was about to explain bee biology and why would I do that next to Doug, is that, you know, we think of honeybees <clears throat> nesting in these, in these nests, in hives, um, which is not characteristic of most bees. So when we talk about ground nesting bees, most bees are like single moms yeah. or small little families doing what? Uh, yeah, they're single moms because the uh, the dads are out doing what we're watching them do now. They're, they're just uh, kind of stalking flowers, looking for all looking the for more they moms. Can find. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so the the vast majority of the upwards of twenty thousand species of bee that live in the world, and uh, in North America we have about three thousand, and in Pennsylvania we have. Uh, there's, a, there's a student, Shelby Kilpatrick, at Penn State, who's updating the list of Pennsylvania, the, the Pennsylvania checklist of bees. Oh, so I, I think we're, uh, importantly, with this update, we've surpassed New York State, and there's some rivalry yeah, there. Yeah, of course. Um, but we're upwards of 400, I think, or, or in, that, in that ballpark anyway, right here. And the vast majority of these are, are solitary. 
Um, and, and the vast majority of, of those are ground nesting. Uh, they, they, they're solitary bees that build burrows underground. They're, they're, they're tunnels that either end in these terminal cells or, or, or branch into, into a bunch of cells. Um, in some cases, they're, they're even kind of linear, but um, they're basically a bunch of, of little nest cells underground connected by tunnels with, with an entrance at the top. They're very inconspicuous. Uh, it's easy to mistake it for something else or just to not see it at all. And the squash bee is, is one of those. Um, and they don't like make honey per se, they sort of like... No, they don't make honey at all. They the nectar yeah, and they... pollen together and pack that in as food, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So they, they collect, in their case, they're squash specialists, so they collect uh, cucurbita pollen and cucurbita nectar. Now, now usually specialist bees will are, are, are um, more tolerant of, of different nectars. They don't care so much where the nectar comes from. But if you're a squash bee and you're visiting squash plants anyway, you're swimming in nectar. So uh, they, they just combine nectar and pollen into this kind of patty that has all the nutritional components that a, a baby squash bee needs to grow up on. And they'll, uh, they'll lay an egg on that patty, they'll seal up the cell, and start working on a new one. And so for, for these bees, the the, the, the the mother dies before these bees even hatch, or, or if they, they hatch, they're you know, little tiny larvae, and they'll, they'll develop um, throughout the, uh, the the growing season, and then I believe they, they overwinter is what's called a pre-pupa. Um, so it's it's right before pupation. Um, I think the, the larva defecates. It has one kind of defecation event, and then it spins its its cocoon. It takes and it's a, a giant it's a pre-pupa, and then spins a cocoon. <laughs> yeah, and they eat all summer, and then, now then on, they poop. Every time I have to go to the bathroom. I'm going to refer to it as a defecation event. <laughs> it's, it's an event. Well, yeah. If you only do it once in the summer, it's, it's an event. <laughs> I would say so. Um, but, so then the, the overwinter is this pre-pupa, um, and different bees overwinter in different stages, but the pre-pupal stage is common, and then they'll emerge the following year. And there are some bees that are actually bivolting and will have two generations in the summer. But yeah. yeah. So, so, so that is like, in other words, that, that is most of beedom. Oh yes, um, yeah. And so honeybees are exceptional in all kinds of ways. They're really yeah. oddballs uh, in the bee world. Those um, like bee houses, like yeah. native bee houses, people make. You know where they're like all these different. Yeah, like, I'm trying to look. I tied a bunch like, of sticks like, to the fence. Yeah, along like here, sticks but. and like bamboo and and is do they actually ever utilize those? Oh I, yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I have a, a a neighbor in Philly who just like ties together. Any hollow thing he has, like like you know the old plastic disposable razor handles and stuff, and just like strings them together with rubber band and oh. uh, you know uh, the, the the shaft of a pen or something, mm. uh, anything that's cylindrical and hollow, uh, and bees use them. Um, they they do have preferences for different materials. Like they they seem to prefer natural materials like, so these like are, hollow So these reeds. are groups of bees that tend to nest in hollow yeah, stems. Yeah, so I, I should think. say yeah. that like the, uh, uh, of the bees that do not nest in, in burrows underground, most of the remainder nest in, in hollow stems or, or similar cavities, and only a small number nest in like tree hollows like you imagine for, for honeybees. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they do work. Um, uh, it, you have to be careful if you just like put the same bundle of sticks out year after year it's going to tend to accumulate pathogens and stuff and so it's a good idea to mm. to clean them out um, some people use disposable paper inserts um though uh, oh. so I, I i i mean there's no shortage of 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 let's say japanese not exactly yeah in fact i, I i'm hoping to so we're, th- this year I, I i i've set up a bunch of these bee hotels so we we accompanied doug for some of his research in the recent buzzing hard episode of the podcast where we saw one of these bee hotels y- 
Yeah. Um, so suffice it to say, the B hotels are not buzzing hard. They're, they're, they're uh, okay. So uh, I, I think the issue is that we we just have uh, either the nests themselves are not attractive enough, or they're just you know we've got twelve of them in Philadelphia, and it might just not be in the right spots. And so I, I wasn't shocked by by that because you often get low occupancy rates with these things but the approach i want to take is to go out this year and harvest just a ton of japanese knotweed and chop it up into suitable lengths and stuff a bunch of pvc pipes with them and And give them out to whoever japanese knotweed is one of these ones where i think we can almost all agree that we don't want it well you know (laughs) actually an ecosystem service of stabilizing roading banks i guess well it it is so i I don't want to come across as advocating it's a great pollinator but but bees love it yeah Um, no i've seen (laughs) no i've I've seen flowering japanese knotweed that is like it's just warmed with with with, and and not just you know honeybees but you see wasps and flies and stuff on it so it, it seems to occupy a very similar niche as goldenrod for flower visiting insects in the fall um so if you have to choose a devastating invasive that's going to drive out a lot of native plants, a big at least it's a food source. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, right. but no, let's, well, let's cut it down. Any flower that will be <laughs> and make it into source. bee nests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I, I am, ab- I hate Japanese knotweed. I am, I am, ab- I st- studied um, invasive shrubs and I did look at my research and I did see results and I do think that you know, it is good to remove the shrubs um, and get the native ones in there. But when I when you look at a forest and the understory is um, bush honeysuckle and privet and what, it doesn't appear that different. You know, it, it it's the shrubs are basically been replaced. Like you, if you know what you're looking at, you know it's different. Yeah. But when you see a autumn olive, when you see a stream that's been invaded by Japanese knotweed, it, it completely transforms the look. Yeah. Like, like nothing else, really. And it, and it just, and that just kills me when, you know, when you have these beautiful streams and, like, the banks are just covered in, in th- this plant. It just really changes Tony, the look of the research forest. research reference, you were checking how many bugs were eating natives versus exotics. Yeah. And you were so, finding. It's, like, about a quarter um, of, the, the, of the invasives. You have, you have four times as many on the natives. Right, right. Um, all right, so I think we've been out here a good while, and there's a few grasshoppers in here. Um, thanks for an episode. If you like the podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast listening app, um, whatever you're using to listen to this. Tell your friends about it. Tell your mom about it. Tell everybody about it. Recommend this episode to any gardeners you know who like squash. Keep a closer eye on your bees, because there's a lot more out there besides honeybees, and they're fascinating. If you want to get a hold of us, um, email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast and find us on Facebook. And we'll provide a link to the Yellow Jacket Lip Guy. We'll throw, <laughs> I'll put some links on the website to the papers we discussed, as well as the Yellow Jacket Lip Guy, of course, so that you know what we were laughing at when you couldn't see it. Oh, wait. And I want to make a special thanks to Doug, who doesn't live in Philadelphia, who like drove in from three hours away. No, I grew up here, so I. I, I know, but here, still, it's, like yeah. it's, it's feels like I sort of think of you as around because you're doing your research. But I think you drove in for this, so I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. And hey, podcast listeners, one last note: that's a development since we were out there recording this. Uh, we now have a Patreon account. This is a way that you can chip in a few bucks, basically help us get better recording equipment, uh, microphones in particular, and provide everybody with a better listening experience please go to patreon.com slash urban wildlife cast to help us out.